0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the U.K., We will approve a new
2: contract to secure another COVID-19 vaccine in our vaccine portfolio. This contract allows us to buy up to 160 million doses of a vaccine produced by Moderna.
3: Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And we thought we'd start off just for a change with a bit of good news. You just heard European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen announcing that the EU will secure another COVID-19 vaccine. And it's not the only one they've lined up.
2: Moderna now, with Moderna now, this is the sixth contract we have with a pharmaceutical company for our COVID-19 vaccine portfolio. We are working on yet another one. By thus, we are setting up one of the most comprehensive COVID-19 vaccine portfolios in the world.
3: We won't get much more into the coronavirus today, though we hope you are, of course, staying safe and that we can provide a little bit of companionship and distraction as lockdowns linger into winter. Later in this episode, we'll talk about two big pieces of tech legislation to be unveiled in Brussels in the coming weeks. You'll hear more about the intense lobbying going on to try and influence those measures. But first, let's get to our podcast panel. So it's a warm welcome to Remontaz in Paris. Hi,
0: Reem. Hello, everyone.
3: And Matt Karnicznik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Happy Thanksgiving. Uh, And to you and to you and to all of those who celebrate, let's start with the subject of some excitement, I think, in Europe among certainly a lot of uh, leaders and mainstream politicians. And that is the announcement of the first key members of President-elect Joe Biden's national security team, Uh, in particular, Anthony Blinken, who's been nominated as Secretary of State. We are also seeing the return of uh, John Kerry, former Secretary of State in a senior climate role. And uh, there are some other names in the frame uh, which haven't been confirmed Yet. but how have these been going down uh, so far uh, in Paris-Ring?
0: Well, there's a lot of excitement. You saw actually former uh, French ambassador to the US, Jérard uh, tweet out, the most francophone team yet! Um They're very excited. They're very excited because Antony Blinken speaks French rather fluently, uh, having uh, spent a good portion of his childhood in France, but also, obviously, John Kerry speaks very good French. Uh, and we're expecting perhaps more francophones to be announced as part of uh, Biden's team and, and next administration.
3: Yeah. And it's also very much, um, I mean, the language uh, that these people like Blinken and, and, and others who are being nominated for these posts, I mean, it is in, in many ways music to the ears of, of people like Emmanuel Macron and uh, Angela Merkel, Matt, isn't it? In terms of their commitment to multilateralism, you know, their profession of faith in the transatlantic alliance. I mean, it really is a very, very different tone from from what we've been hearing from the Trump administration.
4: Yeah, it feels a bit like catnip for all of the -the dyed-in-the-wool multinationalists in Europe. The evil globalists. Yeah, well, and and they've been sort of abused to such a degree over the past four years that, you know, this this really uh, is very welcome. I just wonder how how long it's going to last because I do think, you know, as we've discussed before, there are, um, you know, pretty fundamental—maybe not— disagreements, but, you know, at least uh, policy issues that remain to be resolved and that are going to be difficult to to solve in the coming years, whether it's defense or Middle East policy um know, just just to name two.
0: Or taxation of the tech giants. And I think that's actually something that Paris is very aware of. And, uh, you know, we've been hearing actually this from French officials from before the US election, saying, you know, whoever wins, at the end of the day, there won't be a return to quote, unquote, normal. Um, This is not, you know, the Obama administration, the Obama years weren't normal, either. There had already started being sort of a pivot to Asia, where Also, European nations were expected and asked by Obama to pay up more, uh, you know, within NATO. And so, you know, the French, and in particular, Emmanuel Macron, uh, is definitely adamant that no one should just kind of rest back and stop uh, any of the work that has been launched over the past four years, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, in trying to handle the erratic and uh, unpredictable nature of the Trump administration. Obviously, the Biden administration is going to be more predictable. But the French are very wary of anyone saying, well, great, we can stop all of the talk about, you know, European defense and all the other issues, especially, you know, the taxation of the tech giants.
3: Right. I mean, it does seem like the kind of strategic autonomy crowd has been out in force because partly they are worried that people think, oh, back to business as usual. And suddenly, you know, their big topic uh, slips down the agenda. And I, I do wonder, you know, that we, we have had all these takes recently saying, OK, the tone is different, but some of the underlying issues are going to be the same. Um, that does seem to be the case, but it's still a very, very different tone. And I wonder also how much of what the Trump administration has done is going to to be undone. Matt, do the Germans see a chance, for example, to reverse the the planned troop cuts that the Trump administration, you know, is planning to impose in Germany?
4: Well, I think that's what they're hoping. They haven't said anything publicly uh, about this yet, but, you know, they haven't been implemented and time is running out. So I, I do think that uh, that that is their hope. Uh, at the same time, they're also careful not to provoke uh, President Trump in, in his final, uh, days and weeks in office. And I, I, you know, slightly disagree about this thing about things not going back to normal. It sort of depends on what you think, you know, normal is, because, you know, certainly the, the Bush years were also not normal. The, the uh, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan certainly weren't normal either. But I think it, it will be normal in a sense that the kind of diplomatic language, the way that people treat one another and discuss these issues will go back to, I think, the norm that we've seen in, during past administrations. I think mm. you'd
0: call it maybe more civility instead of mm. instead yeah. of normal. But, you know, on the issue of troop withdrawals, what I was really struck by is that Antony Blinken, so the uh, nominee for Secretary of State, said very clearly when he was asked about the Trump administration's decision to withdraw troops or some U.S. troops from Germany, he said, and I quote him, it's foolish, it's spiteful, and it's a strategic loser. It weakens NATO, it helps Vladimir Putin, and it harms Germany, our most important Ally in Europe. So, as Matt said, he he didn't say we're going to reverse that, but that answer doesn't make it right. sound like they're going to go ahead with it either.
3: Well, as and as as Matt uh, mentioned just before we started recording, uh, you know I can imagine uh, the Brits, what uh, you know, feeling a little bit of chagrin, perhaps, at the fact that they are not regarded as America's most important European ally. Because as as we frequently hear, you know, they're leaving the EU. They have left the EU, but they are not leaving Europe. So I wonder where you know Britain ends up in this kind of uh, calculus of the new U.S. administration. We've heard some very well, remarks from, from Biden himself very much on the side of Ireland when it comes to the you know the post-Brexit uh, settlement and keeping the border open between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland.
5: We do not want a guarded border. We want to make sure we work too hard to get Ireland worked out. And uh, I've talked with the uh, the British Prime Minister, I've talked with the Taoiseach, I've talked with others and talked with the French. The idea of having the... Uh, the border north and south once again being uh, closed and require it 's just not right. we just got to keep the border open
3: Matt, where do you think Britain is going to fit in? They, they certainly have been making the case that they were first to get a call from from Biden or to that Boris Johnson was the first leader to to talk to Biden. Um, Among the Europeans, anyway. Is there a place for them, or do they risk being the odd ones out here? If you've got a francophone, francophile national security team that likes, that thinks Germany is the most important European ally, you know, where do the Brits fit in?
4: Yeah, I think this debate has been uh, slightly overwrought, to be honest, on both sides of the Atlantic. I think that. Whether Biden called uh, Johnson first or not, the UK is and and will remain the most important ally of the United States, not just in Europe but in the world. the The bond between the two countries is is just so deep, culturally speaking, and beyond. Although we did defeat you in the Revolutionary War, some two hundred and. I don't I don't think it was ago. me personally but but thanks for the reminder. Despite that, you know, that's not going to change and I think that if you look at in the context of these debates that we're having now, you, you know, the British are putting more money into defense. They are putting their money where their mouth is. They're actually doing things instead of, you know, continually having these kind of empty debates at the end of the day about strategic and not autonomy, strategic sovereignty, these you know really empty phrases where there's there are no details attached to them. It's all kind of in in the abstract in in the EU when they talk about mm. defense and and the British are actually substantially raising their defense budget in a way that nobody else in Europe is prepared to do. And I think that's the kind of thing that's going to get noticed in Washington.
3: Yeah, and, and I think what is quite remarkable to observe is you know this this word pivot. Uh, became very popular when describing, you know, the pivot to Asia under Obama. But what we're seeing right now under Boris Johnson looks very much like, you know, a pivot to Biden, where, you know, the climate uh, policy is being emphasised, you know, ambitious new targets being announced. And then we had the announcement on defence spending. So it does look like the government that certainly among the, the kind of big European players was closest to the Trump administration is now kind of already shifting focus to priorities that that match with the Biden administration.
4: I would just add to that, uh, that even though that's true that uh, Johnson was probably the closest European leader to Trump, that there were serious disagreements about core issues, including Iran, uh, and including climate policy, as you mentioned, that I think uh, made uh, Johnson's life in the UK fairly difficult at times. And They're much closer with the Biden administration, I think, on on many of these fronts. Yeah, definitely.
0: But what I think that what has fed uh, some of that angst about where the UK will stand is Biden's repeated commentary and statements about Brexit and about Ireland with Brexit and what happens to Northern Ireland with Brexit. And it's something that he holds, you know, very close to his heart. But but so does
4: the UK. I mean, everybody wants to preserve the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, nobody wants any conflict there,
0: right? I mean,
3: nobody does. But it's the question of, um, you know, what measures might inadvertently.
0: And if you'll recall, this started happening when the UK had started for a while as perhaps part of its negotiating tactic, making some uh, slightly ambiguous statements about where that might go. Uh, And so you saw very forcefully, you know, Nancy Pelosi. There will be no bilateral US-UK
2: agreement if the border, the Good Friday Accords uh, in regard to uh, the border are changed. And, and actually, how can they walk away from an international agreement?
0: How do you trust that? But also Biden come out and very forcefully kind of reaffirm the importance of the Good Friday agreement. And I think this is what fed some of that angst. And, and like you say, Matt, at the end of the day, I really don't think that the UK will be replaced in the role that it has played with the US. I think all of these alliances are going to sort of adjust in various ways.
3: Yeah, that's going to be interesting to to follow, I think. And I, I do think that, in a sense, it's partly about signalling, right, when, when Biden talks about the importance of the Good Friday Agreement, you know, that is seen in Dublin as a kind of, you know, strong support for them. And so, while, you know, nobody is going to be saying we want a return to the conflict in Ireland... The sort of political symbolism behind making a statement like that as the president elect you know shouldn 't be uh, underestimated, uh, I guess I should just say also just to to make sure we have the brussels perspective that uh, the two the two big presidents here also got their calls from from Biden in the last few days, so they were not quite in the first rank but the old uh, Kissinger line about if um you know, you want to call Europe. Who do you call? Turns out you have to call two people. They can't be on the same line. Separate calls. So there was a call with Michel, a call with Von der Leyen, and uh, they were both obviously quick to tell us afterwards that those calls had happened. So again, that's. But it does show that this is, you know, a president elect who is interested in talking to the leaders of EU institutions in a way that, you know, the current president. I, I you know, frankly, I'm not sure if you would know who Charles Michel is if 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 you were asked.
4: Or care if he did. <laughs> so,
0: <okay>. And there <laughs> there are two things that the, you were talking about signaling, Andrew, and there are two things that the Biden incoming administration has signaled that definitely Paris has taken note of. One, uh, you know, immediately saying that on day one, they're going to come back into the Paris Climate Agreement. This is huge for Paris. They're very, very happy about that. And, you know, naming a special sort of representative for climate who's going to be part of the cabinet. So with Secretary Rank, uh, with John Kerry, that's super important to the French. And then also just more generally when you listen to everything. Does he speak
4: French too? He John Kerry?
0: Does. He certainly does. Do you remember when he was running yeah. for president and he was cured for speaking yeah. such a this French? Is it.
3: yeah, that was not that was not an electoral advantage.
0: That yeah. was America. Um, right. but, but also, and, and lastly, I think what's important and what is being taken note of in Europe is just how often people like Jake Sullivan, who is, you know, tapped to be Biden's, uh, next, uh, national security advisor, but also Antony Blinken and others talk about the importance of their allies of the transatlantic relationship of making sure that they work with their allies and that they consult and they coordinate. These are words that had completely, um, yeah. escaped I mean, and again, disappeared. But the
3: language is yeah, is big. But and then also you're talking about several individuals who were intimately involved in the Iran nuclear deal. So I guess that's the that's the more Open question. Although I do think that Biden has said that he wants to go back into it, like in some kind of renegotiated form, right?
0: Yeah, it won't be. You
3: think that might be harder than it looks?
0: Yeah, because one, they can't go, they can't snap back into it like the Paris Climate Agreement. They could. There are internal political uh, considerations in Iran that are playing into this. Uh, there is a presidential election coming up in 2021 in Iran that are going to play into it. Uh, Iran has, of course, sort of violated in a in a very significant way. The JCPOA now, of course, after the U.S. pulled out and, and... It's
4: enriched 12 times the allowed limit.
0: Yes. Right. So I where mean, do you go some, from there? That's
4: some violation. Yes, I mean, I think I think this is the, you know, this is the reality of it. It's going to be very difficult to just jump back in. People, you know, have the shorthand, oh, they're going to reactivate no. the JCPOA. I mean, that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen it's overnight. Not an of, it's not no. going to happen yeah. in a couple of months. And, yeah. you know, aside from the uranium issue, if you look at all of the malevolent behavior on the part of the Iranian regime recently, I think politically in the, in the United Middle States is going to be in the Middle East, but yeah. also... In Iran, it's going to be, you know, very very difficult to reactivate the deal.
0: No, I think I think we all agree this is going to be a longer, more difficult negotiation. We're
3: going to try and stick to time, partly so that our uh, long suffering producer, Christina, doesn't have so much editing time this week and might be able to enjoy Thanksgiving. So we'll leave it there for now and come back uh, at the end of the podcast very briefly with our recommendations to get you through lockdown. So Reem, uh, Matt, thanks very much for now. Thank you. Thank you. Now, just a quick thing before our next feature. As the year winds down, we've been thinking about doing some kind of end of year event with you, our listeners. Maybe a virtual drink or a chat with me and the podcast panel about the EU, European politics or whatever else takes your fancy, really. A kind of festive um, end of year event, although I'm not sure if festive is the right word uh, this year. maybe it is if we actually just managed to get to the end of 2020. So if you'd like to be involved in that, if you like the sound of it, please just drop us a line, just telling us that. Uh, that's all you really need to do. The email address is podcast. Political.eu. That's podcast at political.eu. And now I'm going to hand over to our producer, Christina Gonzalez, to talk about those two big tech regulations, the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act. They'll be proposed by the Commission in the coming weeks, and in a few minutes you'll hear a conversation about all of the lobbying going on to try and influence these key measures. But first, Christina spoke to our technology editor, Nick Vineker to get us up to speed on what we need to know in this digital debate. And she started by asking Nick to explain what the Commission is expected to propose and why.
6: The Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act taken together are the flagship digital legislation of this Commission. The Digital Services Act is a regulation that looks at content moderation, how big platforms police what shows up on their websites, whether that's illegal content, such as terrorist propaganda, or things like counterfeit or faulty goods promoted on e-commerce websites. This is a regulation that aims to reinforce the way Companies police the, their uh, sites for uh, for that sort of content, and also increase the transparency how they do it. They want to give people more insight into how this stuff is taken down and how the decisions are made. The other hand, you have the Digital Markets Act, which is looking at gatekeepers, so-called digital gatekeepers, companies that are so large and so powerful that they sort of create a market in and of themselves on the internet. The Commission has identified, give or take, between twelve and twenty of these companies many of them American, some of them European, uh, that meet the threshold to be digital gatekeepers. And these companies are going to be subjected to rules, do's and don'ts of how they should behave, uh, in particular, how they should behave with third-party vendors that try to sell their goods through the platform, such as such as Amazon. And it's going to be everything from self-preferencing, like you cannot rate your own products uh, higher than your uh, the third-party vendor's product to rules about how to use data. You can't use sales data that you found on a third-party vendor to refine and improve your own products. These are massive pieces of legislation with corresponding interest from the companies in influencing the debate. And that's what we're going to talk about today is the lobbying, the massive lobbying effort ongoing as we speak to shape the debate about these pieces of legislation.
7: Before we get to that conversation, can you maybe just map out the different stakeholders, the different players? You know, what is the the battleground? Because I imagine that there are a lot of people who who have a lot at stake.
6: Absolutely. Um, well, the stakeholders on one hand are the big digital companies. Uh, these are familiar to everyone: Facebook, Google, Amazon, Apple. Twitter, any company that has a big platform with millions or billions of users uh, able to post quite freely on it. One of the big issues uh, is what sort of illegal content they have to take down. And on one side of the debate, you've got, for example, governments like the French government, which wants the companies to be more proactive in taking down terrorist content, among other things. There are civil society groups that want these companies to be more proactive in taking down hate speech or uh, harmful content, uh, self-harm or child abuse, or anything you can think of. They want them to flag it and find it and take it down more aggressively. But there's also a commercial side of it. There are companies like big brand companies like uh, LVMH or or even Apple that say, actually, you have to police your platform to take down counterfeit or false or, or faulty products and do a better job with that. So that's a little bit the, uh, stakeholders, big platforms on one side, governments, other big companies that hold intellectual property and civil society groups pushing for uh, you know better policing of content on the internet. That's for the Digital Services Act. On the Digital Markets Act, quite clearly, you've got sort of the same stakeholders. Uh, we mentioned these 12 to 20 companies. A lot of them are American. There was the the famous uh, GAFA, uh, Google, Apple, Facebook, and Amazon, as well as a couple others. But there are European companies involved as well that may meet the threshold. As gatekeepers, um, and these companies are pushing very hard not to be subjected to these rules. On the other side, who do we have? SMEs, uh, smaller companies that say they're not playing fair. They need to be. Uh, they need to have rules to keep their behavior in check. And uh, of course, uh, some European governments that say the practices are not fair and and they need to be pulled in better.
7: Right. And we should say that we have invited industry representatives of some of these bigger tech companies to to join our conversation today. Unfortunately, we weren't able to Get anybody uh, to join us in this particular conversation, but we just wanted to you know make sure to reflect some of the points that big tech has expressed. For example, I have a clip here of Mark Zuckerberg earlier in the year he was at the Munich Security Conference, basically making his pitch to the European Commission about you know what Facebook um which I know doesn't necessarily represent all of these companies, but basically what they would be looking for in this forthcoming legislation?
8: I think that there needs to be regulation in at least four areas touching our company. Um, And they are elections and and political discourse around content more broadly, content moderation, um, privacy, and data portability. And the, the, the reason why I really believe that this needs to happen is because... There are a lot of decisions in these areas that are really just balances between different social values. What what should be the the balance between free expression and safety? What is is political discourse and what's the boundary between that and political interference? Um, To what extent do we want companies to be locking down data and to what extent do we want them to be encouraging them to make it more open, to encourage more innovation and competition and academic research? So I believe what our responsibility is is to build the operational muscle to be able to proactively um, enforce whatever the policies and, and, and regulations are, where the lines in my opinion should be drawn is there should be more uh, guidance and regulation from the states on, on what kind of you know take political advertising as an example, um, you know what discourse should be allowed um, or on the balance of um, of free expression and, and some things that people call harmful expression, where do you draw the line? What kinds of systems should companies have to have to develop? Um, in the absence of that kind of regulation, we will continue doing our best. But I actually think on a lot of these questions that are trying to balance different social equities, it's not just about coming up with the right answer. It's about coming up with an answer that society feels is legitimate. And I just don't think a private company will ever have the weight to create that kind of legitimacy. So... That's why I'm arguing for this. I and of
6: course, course this is this is part yes, of the game. Very- all the parties are going to try to influence uh, the debate and the legislation while they still can. The views and opinions of some of those companies are reflected in, in Politico. We have interviews of executives from, from Google and YouTube. Um, they didn't want to join this particular conversation, but that doesn't mean we're keeping them out. This is a conversation we wanted to focus on the lobbying, the effort to influence the debate uh, that often isn't really in the public view. We want to do a focus on that because we know there's so much activity going going on behind the scenes, if you will, some of it transparent, some of it less transparent. And we wanted to sort of open a window onto that and bring in some experts who can tell us really about what's going on ahead of the DSA and the DMA being unveiled on December 9th is the latest date we have for for these uh, pieces of legislation to be unveiled.
7: Okay, great. Then let's get straight to your conversation with Margarita Silva from Corporate Europe Observatory, which is an NGO that tracks corporate influence in EU policymaking, and Jan Penfret from European Digital Rights, which is an advocacy group representing NGOs from around Europe in Brussels.
6: I want to uh, start with you, Margarita. Um, in terms of activity, in terms of spending, in terms of uh, sheer intensity of the effort, how does this measure up to? past sort of lobbying battles that you have seen here in Brussels
1: recently we put out a study where we looked at the lobby declarations of the big five so Google Apple Amazon Facebook and Microsoft and we found a uh, declared lobby budget a combined declared lobby budget of 21 million euros so when it comes really and then when you look at it compared to other industries when it comes to individual company expenditures there's no single company that matches big Tech having money, doesn't necessarily make you win, but allows you to engage in many different battles at many different levels. So if you are someone of the size of Google, you are able to lobby at the same time, council, parliament and commission, and then you can continue lobbying afterwards in the terms of implementation. It's important to look at that because of how it matches to the relative lack of power of civil society movements or of uh, small and medium enterprises, which do not have the resources to match what big tech is doing this is really where the lobbying issue becomes a problem because the problem is not so much that Google puts forward its message. We should expect that. The problem is that it has the resources to influence the policymaking process in ways that no one else has so no one else can match it.
6: Yeah, so so turning over to, to you, Jan, if we can sum up what the message is, uh, we've heard about all these millions of dollars being deployed here in Brussels. What is the message they want to get across to the commission EU legislators and lawmakers about this
2: upcoming digital package. If it's possible to sum up the messaging of big tech companies, you know they're going to present themselves as being indispensable. And, you know their message is, you need us uh, for Corona recovery, digital innovation in Europe. Uh, you need us to not fall behind uh, with China. So the message is really like, without us, Europe is not going to make it in the battle for digital innovation. They say it's going to, you know, if you overregulate big tech, it's basically going to decrease. Uh, Europe's GDP, you know, tremendously. You know, going to lose uh, employment tremendously, and and that's surprising because, um, you know, companies such as Google and Facebook aren't employing so many people actually in Europe, um, but they point to other industries that they say depend on their what they call ecosystems. You know, that's app developers, designers, um, and and so on. Right describing the lobbying, which is, which is part of life here in Brussels and part of the way the the
6: sausage gets made. But there are more obvious forms of lobbying. And then there are forms that are less obvious and, and perhaps less transparent. But go back to you, Margarita, what are we seeing in terms of indirect forms of lobbying?
1: In these cases, we often see uh, more or less the same strategy being used. So when you try to get uh, third parties are allies to echo their message. This could be think tanks, um, NGOs sometimes as well, trade associations. In the case of big tech, we often discuss academics and how academics influence the public discussion. But there's also other parts of lobbying that are still not covered by the Transparency Register. For instance, how a company like Google is able to lobby both in Brussels and outside of Brussels at the same time. So how much of this lobbying is happening towards member states, for instance, we still don't know, and we are not able to fully see the operations at the capitals.
6: Right. And, and you mentioned Google. Uh, there was an example uh, in the press recently, a lobbying document from Google where they described this practice in a way of using uh, proxies or third parties, I believe even the U.S. government, to press certain points now, is that something that companies have been open and transparent about, about their use?
1: No, absolutely not. So for anyone that has been following lobbying in Brussels, this strategy is maybe not so much a surprise. What this leak is maybe surprising is that because it's the first time that we see a black and white, this is what we do. So we have a proposal in Brussels that could affect our, our business model. So we are going to go to the U.S. government and try to mobilize the U.S. government to interfere in new politics. This is something that um, colleagues that were around during general data protection regulations said that was very crucial as well back then, where the U.S. government tried to influence the discussions here on privacy regulation. There were also mentions around um, creating a conflict within the European Commission.
6: So what we're talking about here is an internal lobbying document that was obtained by various press organizations, including the Financial Times, Politico as well, which detailed the lobbying strategy in Brussels. I want to be very clear that we have reached out to Google and, and invited them to join this conversation and they were not interested for the time being. I want to turn over to you, Jan, and talk about the message here because as it was just described, there is a fine-tuned approach that can look to use certain parts of the commission as friends and other parts as, as people to influence. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that. And also tell us, is there any difference between lobbying on the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act?
2: In a way, I would argue that the strategies that were in that document, they aren't surprising. That's what basically every big company does. I myself have uh, started my career in corporate lobbying. And what I remember from that time is that one of the rules that you have is whatever you devise as a strategy, don't put it black on white. You know, you, you don't want to read this in, in, you know, on Politico the next morning. So that's currently a fundamental rule that they ignored in this case. But, you know, the fact that this is commonplace doesn't make it better um, to the contrary. Um, and I think that's really important to say that if you do lobbying, you need to be as transparent as possible and make clear, especially towards the lawmakers that you want to influence. Who you are in whose name you're speaking and this is the big difference that i see in this dsa dma battle as compared to previous lobbying battles is that here is you know we see a degree of attempts to hide where the actual message is coming from that at least i haven't seen so much anywhere else Um, now to your question of you know the digital services act that concerns more the content moderation and platform liability side of things versus the Digital Markets Act that is about the new competition policy and the so-called ex ante rules in terms of competition policy, my feeling is that the platforms have not so much to lose in terms of the Digital Services Act. Like All the questions around the content moderation, taking down content, treating illegal content, filtering, all these things, that's old debates that they've had before. They've survived that before in they know how to do this. They're they're big enough to employ enough uh, content moderators, and to they have the technology to filter content. You know they don't do it well, but they do it well enough so that policymakers are happy. And so I, I don't think that's where they see the big danger, which is why they and that's my really my my feeling. That's why they maybe try to shift the debate towards the DSA because they know that's the that's one they can win. And when you talk about the Digital Markets Act, you have hard rules that would seriously limit what big tech companies are allowed and not allowed to do in their markets and and that means ex ante and so there would be a regulatory authority that can enforce this without having to prove that actual damage has been done on the market and so this is this is really new thinking um and that could you know seriously limit the ways that some of the big tech companies are making their billions today and so i would suspect this to be the part of the law where big tech companies are more scared of and more worried about and so that's why I think it's more silent around this. They probably um, do a lot of behind closed doors uh, lobbying on this, but not so much in terms of public visibility lobbying.
6: Right. And one of the things we've heard there is that there should be the same rules for companies of all sizes, right? Whether you're uh, super big or super small, and that's obviously going against the the principle of of the Digital Markets Act. I want to take a second just to say that these arguments are worth making. We have made them in Politico. We have Published interviews of uh, executives from Google, from YouTube, putting across their views as is fair in, a, in an open democratic debate. What we're really talking here is about the energy and the resources deployed to sort of shape the debate. Uh, we've mentioned Google a couple times, but we'd be remiss if we didn't mention also Facebook and Amazon and Apple and eBay and, and a lot of companies involved in this. And on the other side, there are also major stakeholders, the big owners of intellectual property of brands. Uh, from LVMH to to any company you can think of that has an interest in getting these rules passed. So the lobbying is really in the round here. We're talking about big tech because they're in the news. But of course, the lobbying is is across the board here. I want to thank both of you, Margarita and Jan, for for joining us, giving us your insights about the, the ongoing lobbying because it's very much alive these next few weeks. Uh, thanks very much indeed. That's all from me.
1: Thank you. Thank
6: you.
3: Okay, thanks to Nick and to Christina for bringing us that conversation. And now uh, Reem and Matt are back with us briefly for the streaming, listening, reading recommendations to help you get through lockdown. Reem uh, said she was very keen, very excited. So give us yours, Reem.
0: So in honor of the coronavirus uh, vaccine announcements, oh, yeah. uh, this week I'm recommending a WnyC podcast called Dolly Parton's America because Dolly Parton donated one million dollars to moderna uh, and they are one of the you know the companies that has come up with one of the vaccines. So yay, Dolly Parton and she's okay. really fun to listen to.:
3: All right, I think this is something that the whole the whole panel, the whole world can agree on pro Dolly Parton
4: uh, Matt, what's yours? Beat that! He's frowning. Yeah, it's it's hard. I've got a more serious one uh, oh. this week, but it has a, a French angle. It's a oh, uh, biography of uh, Charles de Gaulle. Oh, okay. And yeah. uh, Julian Jackson's? Are, uh, no. Well, this is the this is the, the problem maybe for some listeners with this one that it's it's actually in German. It's oh. uh, by a uh, German journalist named Johannes Wilms. But it's quite good, I'm, I'm in the middle of it, and it seems like an apt time okay. to brush up on France in general, yeah, on, and its on grand capitalism. aspirations.
3: Yeah, okay. Okay, great. But there we go. The ultimate praise there from Matt. It's quite good. Uh, I will mention a podcast series which, uh, you know, has been around for a little while. I caught up with it a while ago. Some of our listeners will have heard it. But if you haven't heard it, The Missing Crypto Queen from the BBC is very good. It's a mystery, but it's about a lot more than that. And also has some terrific Bulgarian choral music as well. So what's not to like? All right, Reem and Matt, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. We hope you're already a subscriber to the podcast, but if not, please take a moment now to click subscribe or follow wherever you listen so that you get every episode automatically. We'll be back with you next week with a look at the first year of the von der Leyen Commission, which has been nothing if not eventful. Until then, I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez.